Uh, Father, I thank you so much that uh, you have called us to be your children, to be your family, um, and to be this interesting and, and beautiful and, and unique thing called the church, the body of Christ, the temple of God. And um, it's, it's such a privilege, Father, and so we pray that as we meet together this morning to open your word, uh, that you would speak to us from it um, in ways that we haven't heard you before, Father, that you would bring us a fresh revelation of who you are and therefore who we are in you. And um, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for how they've been passed down to us, that we have free and uh, ready access to them, and that you speak to us through your Holy, by your Holy Spirit through uh, your word. Open our hearts and our minds, just in these next few moments, Lord, as we sit here with you. And Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts this morning be pleasing and acceptable to you, our strength, our rock, and our redeemer. Amen. So, uh, we... Uh, jumping in this morning to a new series, and we're going to start that with uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. Thank you, David. 1 Corinthians 1, 1 to 9. I, Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, and to be called by his holy people together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from, our, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given to you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about the Christ among you. Therefore do not lack in any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So today we're beginning a series on 1 Corinthians, and uh, I'm glad you're here this morning, including those of you online, um, whether I look that way or that way, hopefully you'll see me. Um, uh, why, why are we going to be studying the book of 1 Corinthians, or the epistle to the Corinthians? Because as the church, we seek to first and foremost be a thriving family. That's our, our vision and desire, to be a thriving family of God, transforming our communities, transforming communities with Jesus. And um, to be the church is really uh, that, to be thriving and fully alive and healthy as a, a body, a people together. And 1 Corinthians has more teaching on the church uh, than almost any of uh, Paul's other letters. Um, and so because it's written with this in mind, it's written to a community of people who are dealing with very real issues very human struggles and, and challenges and tension and, and disputes. Um, much of Paul's words are very practical and every bit as relevant today uh, to us as they were to those people um, approximately 2,000 years ago, to the original readers. So a bit of context to begin with. The city of Corinth 
where the church is placed that this letter is written to. A few hundred years before Christ, um, the, the term Corinthiazo had come to mean to act like a Corinthian, i.e. to commit fornication. That was the association with this place. That's sometimes overemphasized, though, when people talk about Corinth, because um, that city was destroyed. It lay in ruins for a number of years, and then around 44 BC, it was rebuilt by the Romans, and this was the new Corinth, not the old Corinth. Still with some of that association of idolatry and and, and fornication and everything, but also, most importantly, it was a center of trade. So a very wealthy uh, center between different places, and, and it was an opportunity for a whole range of different people. So people who, who were like one step up from slaves called freedmen, they were able to come and, and, and try and get a step up in life and, and earn a living because of what the, the city was. But also the wealthy and the very well-off were able to go there and try and uh, capitalize on the opportunities that lied in the city. And so it was once a kind of a New York or a Los Angeles or a London central kind of place in that context. Um, A huge mishmash of cultures. So you're talking Greek and Roman and the Eastern religions, mystical religions of Egypt and Asia, Jews with their peculiar view that there is only one God, because of course all the others thought there were many. Um, In fact, at least 26 different sacred places, like temples or kind of sacred places of sorts existed in the city, at least 26, uh, dedicated to various gods or lords, as the case may be. And so it's this huge mishmash of cultures and religions and practice. Um, the reason this matters is because what's said of the, of the Corinthian church, um, uh, in fact, what's said about Corinth in various parts of the Bible is that, and it suggests that the church mirrored the city. So that the, the, the interactions and the differences in culture and whatnot in the city very much was the same in the church. Uh, tensions between the rich and the poor, for example. Um, people with a variety of religious backgrounds now trying to follow Jesus. And all of the evidence suggests that the Christians brought a Hellenistic, that means a Greek, worldview into their ethical behavior. That, their, their attitude was very shaped by the Greek mindset. And so that later on, the, the letter deals with issues about food sacrifice to idols. Is it wrong to eat those? Is it right? Whatever. Um, sexual immorality, because some thought it was perfectly acceptable to keep on sleeping with the temple prostitutes at a certain pagan temple or two. Views about marriage in the Corinthian culture were still shaping how they now saw marriage and, and how it should be lived out. And, and among all of that, this very strong desire for Sophia, the Greek word, wisdom, um, from, from gifted philosophers, because that's what they're, they're these gifted philosophers they would seek after, and, and spiritual experiences associated with the angelic, and, and, and that was sort of this thing they would pursue and, and seek after, Hellenistic thought, Greek thought, shaping their worldview. Uh, Gordon Fee, one of the, um, if not the most uh, uh, respected scholar on 1 Corinthians, um, I'll quote him quite a lot in the next uh, month or so, Uh, He says, although they were the Christian church in Corinth, an inordinate amount of Corinth was yet in them, emerging in a number of attitudes and behaviors that required radical surgery without killing the patient. This is what 1 Corinthians attempts to do. Um, Now, this is not an uncommon scenario in the Bible. God's people having their belief 
uh, and practice shaped by other cultures is very common. It happens over and over. Take Egypt, for example, and the Israelites who were in Egypt and then were moved out after they were freed. This is thousands of years earlier. God's people are given a new land, a new future, a new destiny, and their attitude and behavior should have changed, but it was still very much shaped by Egypt. They would say, at least in Egypt, we still had food. Why, why did you bring us out to the desert here to die? At least in Egypt, we had this and that. Um, one, really, one thing I found really interesting was the retelling of the, of the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy. So first commandments we first see in Exodus. Then later on, Moses is speaking them to a new generation of Israelites. And there's one thing he changes, not the commandments themselves, but the reasoning. And the one thing he changes is the reason to keep the Sabbath. So if you don't know that commandment, work six days, rest one. Um, because as he says in Exodus, God made the world in six days and rested on the seventh. So we are to do the same. So it's based in the creation story. Later on in Deuteronomy, he says, keep the Sabbath. Why? Because the Lord your God has brought you out of Egypt. What's he saying? Rest because the Lord's brought you out of Egypt. You're free. You're free from that slave-driven life of work, 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 driven every day to work, work, work. Don't go back there in your mind. Don't go back there in your attitude and behavior. It's, said, uh, by a few, it's been said that Moses could get the Israelite, was able to get the Israelites out of Egypt, but he couldn't get Egypt out of the Israelites. And it's the same with the disciples Many, many years later, it took a while with them, uh, Jewish expectations at the time for a Messiah who will conquer um, and, and overthrow the Romans. And Jesus says, I must suffer and die. So what does Peter do? No way, Jesus, this will not happen to you. Not on my, never shall this happen to you. To which Jesus replies, get behind me, Satan, which is kind of an ouch moment. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the, and listen to this, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. What is shaping their thinking? Even after Jesus' death and resurrection, uh, uh, God speaks to Peter in a dream and says, go kill, eat these animals. And Peter says, surely not, Lord. These are unclean because of the culture he's, and, and the understanding he's come to have in that context. And God says, no, don't call what's, un- what's clean unclean. I'm telling you to do this. God's people have always struggled to fully let go of mindsets and attitudes and perspectives and tendencies and be reformed by God's new way of thinking. It's always been a struggle, always been a tension in the lives of human beings. Although they were the Christian church in Corinth, an inordinate amount of Corinth was yet in them, he says. So Paul writes this letter, and the background to the relationship between Paul and Corinthians is that he'd gone there many years earlier to start the church, basically, as a missionary, and he spent 18 months there and he started things up, and then he moved on and left leaders in place, and then he began to hear, uh-oh, things aren't going so well. There's a lot of stuff going on. There's tensions. There's practices which really aren't aligned with the gospel. There's a number of problems, sexual behavior, marriage issues, relationship breakdown, the whole food idol thing 
Um, so he's writing to address these, but the letter we have in front of us, 1 Corinthians, is probably the second letter. It's probably a letter that we don't have. It's not absolutely confirmed, but this is what scholars think, that there is a letter that he wrote to them having heard about these issues, and then he's probably received a letter back from them saying, nah, we don't agree, Paul, and now he's responding back a second time, as well as having heard some, um, some verbal uh, updates. It says in uh, chapter 1, Chloe's household have informed me that there's disputes among you. So very typical stuff in a church. People are talking behind people's backs and there's whinging and all that kind of stuff. Um, and behind all the behavioural issues, there's another big one. A really uh, substantial issue and problem Paul has to overcome. The Corinthians are now dismissing Paul's authority and validity as a leader, a pastor, a teacher, an apostle, if you like. Um, it's also due to the Corinthian thinking, the Hellenistic thinking coming in about people's status and worthiness. They're trying to seek out this Sophia wisdom. Uh, and, and it seems that possibly due to Apollos, who's another leader who came in, wonderful orator, rhetorical skills that far superior to Paul. Paul and so it's almost as if, well, Paul, Paul's gospel was just milk for babies. But we're past that now. We've moved on to something greater. Hellenistic thinking coming into the way they see wisdom and, and enlightenment, if you like. Paul is just a tent maker because he would make a living alongside what he would do, the work of the gospel. And, and um, he's clearly not learned and worthy. There was another thing where they said, well, he didn't accept the gift from us. So that, you know, they, they had all this thinking about whether, whether Paul's really worthy to be a, somebody who speaks into our life with authority. And so he's got to uphold that. He's got to uphold this servant approach to leadership and authority modeled on Jesus and at the same time establish his authority, challenge their theology, challenge their practice, which, and this is the key, because their theology and their practice threatens the gospel which they, because they are reshaping it. Uh, Fee says they're modifying the gospel towards Hellenism, Greek thinking. They think the gospel is just this divine wisdom that's sort of a step up from the other kinds of wisdom we've experienced and sought out in our, in our previous religions. Um, and it's presented properly, and it, the, the one that, by the most gifted pastor, the most gifted teacher and orator, like Apollos or like whatever. And so essentially they're looking at Paul, they're looking at his leadership, and consequently the message that he has brought them from those many years before. And they're looking at it as insufficient because the lens through which they're viewing things now isn't shaped by the gospel, but it's shaped by the city, by the world around them, by the culture. Um, the blessing on us today, living in Perth, Western Australia, is that we live in a world that's been a culture, a Western culture, that's been quite substantially shaped by Christian values. We take for granted things like every human being is valuable. Everybody agree with that? Every human being has value and worth in, in, in each other's eyes and in God's eyes. We, we unequivocally say slavery, that somebody would be a commodity, that is evil. We, we are trying to make sure that there, are, there is equal value given to men and women, people of different race. We're still working on that kind of thing, but we're getting there. All of these things are not just 
something dropped into our mind when we're born. These things, these are values and, and perspectives shaped by a culture that has been shaped by Christianity. And in other cultures, it just isn't the case that you would automatically think every human being has value and worth. Some, in some cultures, it'd be like, well, no, some are a commodity, some are more valuable. But God's vision and plan for the world is not that it would just become Western culture, even though there are some positives to the Western culture in which we live. God's vision and plan for the world is not where a few biblical values are uphold, but the kingdom of God on earth. The kingdom in its fullness in this place on earth. That's God's vision. Where all worship him day in and day out. And there is no need and there's no hunger and there's no pain. And all is fulfilled in God alone. And let's be honest, there is nowhere on earth where that is fully the reality. Tracking so far? You agree with me? There's nowhere that the kingdom of God is, is in its fullness absolutely 100%. And so that means if the church, the people of God, looks like the city it's placed in, there's a problem. It doesn't mean that we have shaped the city. It means the, sh- the city or the culture has shaped us. And because we're stewarding the gospel, the message of God, that also means that we've begun, even unintentionally, to reshape the gospel itself if we look like the culture. So for the Corinthians, one example was the extreme use of speaking in tongues. Um, without going into this in depth, basically they accept, they, they received this gift, some of them or all of them, who knows, and they thought, wow, we can speak the language of angels now. And these spiritual experiences, very important in some of their past culture and thinking, Hellenistic worldview, so they just go for it. And Paul comes along and says, well, what does the gospel say about this? This is, we're not here to just seek out the most wonderful and extravagant spiritual experiences. We're here to love one another, build one another up. And they're starting to get off track with the purpose of the gift. Or, for example, demanding loyalty to human leaders because they are clearly God's divinely appointed philosopher or leader um, like Apollos, look how wonderfully he speaks and how it just rolls off his tongue. right? And, and so this means the gospel is being reshaped because they're thinking the gospel is not for those who are hurting and broken, but it's for the special people, the learned people, the extra wise people. See how the, the message is being reshaped inadvertently. So what is the gospel? I mentioned a few times that you know Paul says, well, what does the gospel say about this? What is the, go- what is the gospel? The, or to use English, the good news, the good news of Jesus. Um, At the heart of it, it's this announcement that Jesus made at the very beginning of his ministry. The kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven in Matthew's gospel, has come near. Repent and believe this good news. The kingdom of God has come near. The gospel is, is an invitation. It's an invitation to turn from our ways towards God, Uh, who embraces us with grace, with mercy, forgiveness of sins, new life in the kingdom. And this is, or once some translations say, the kingdom of God is at hand. And this good news is a future hope, future, in in the future, in the distance, not yet happened, and an offer for right now. Future and already. Future hope offer for right now to no longer be separated from God. Because if the kingdom is here, that means God is here with us. 
And this is one thing, a really major thing, that Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians around the good news. The already, and I think we've got a slide for this on the screen, maybe, the already but not yet kingdom. The already but not yet kingdom. I might not have put it on the slides, don't worry. Let's say that together. The already but not yet kingdom. This is what Paul talks uh, quite substantially about, um, both uh, explicitly and implicitly. Part of the immoral behaviour of the people in the Corinthian church comes from the fact that they have this belief, the body is of no eternal uh, significance. What I do with my body now, what does that matter? Because I'm a spiritual being who's going to float off into the heavenlies or enlightenment or whatever it might be called in the future. And so right now, uh, for example, the misuse of tongues. Well, we speak the, angui- the language of angels now. Let's just go for it. Or maybe the temple prostitute thing. Well, it doesn't matter if we go use our bodies with a temple prostitute. That has nothing to do with my spirit. And this is not the gospel. The gospel is that the already is we live here now. God, the kingdom of God is here. And the not yet is that one day God will raise these bodies from the dead and we will live in eternity with him in a physical reality. So, again, Hellenistic thinking imposed on Christian belief. We are very much, though, in the already but not yet. We are already and not yet people. Uh, This is eschatology, for those of you who like theological words. The Spirit has a foretaste of future glory that's not yet fully consummated. And and it's a paradox, right? It's it's two things that sort of are, are... seemingly can't happen at once, but, but they do. It's a paradox. The future has begun and it shapes our lives today and it's not yet completed and awaits final consummation. It's already and not yet. So in light of this, there's a calling for us. We are the church and there's a calling for us that's different to any organisation or community or club or, 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 or structure or whatever it might be. And I love the way that Fee puts it, and it's been on the screen uh, this morning as the title of this message, that we are to become who we are. Now, have a think about that. That makes no sense. How can you become what you already are? If you already are something, you can't become it. And if you're becoming something, it means you're not there yet. So, so it's like, uh, but this is, this is the reality. We are to become who we are. <laughs> Listen to verse 2 that we read earlier, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. That's like, it sort of doesn't make sense. We are sanctified in Christ Jesus, made holy, another way of putting that. And we're called to be or become his holy people, becoming who we already are. Fee says imperatives, that means things which are, we are called to do, actions, are always in the context of God's prior actions on our behalf in Christ. Jesus has already done it in us. We are to live out of obedience to that. Living in radical obedience to God is the imperative, and it's an outflow of faith. And if you read other letters uh, written by Paul to different areas, different churches in different cities, he emphasizes a different thing. Like Romans and Galatians, he's saying, don't add requirements to salvation. Right? Don't go say the gospel is that um, salvation, life with God is freely given, as, but also you need to get circumcised first, or you need to do this first. And so grace is freely given. Salvation is by grace through faith. Don't add to it. 
But in Corinthians, the focus is more on this. As saved people, as redeemed people, out of that, live in the way that God is calling you to live. The expression of faith. Not the requirement for it, but the outflow. James says a similar thing. He says this, the pattern for all behavior is Christ himself, as his life is mediated through the life of the apostle. That's Paul. Thus the gospel is not turned into law, but neither is it divested of its true response. All is of grace, but grace brings the spirit who enables the imitation of Christ. So what does a church becoming who we are in Jesus look like? I want to suggest a couple of things um, based on two images, two main images that Paul uses, which you see on the screen, the temple and the body. Um, and this is like a big part of what he talks about in his letter. Are you with me so far? Is this too much? Uh, I want to just give this context and what this is all about before we move on next week into working through the letter. The local church is is God's temple in Corinth. This is the first image. Made holy and becoming holy. Um, We are one of God's temples in Canningvale, among other church families as well. Um, That means we're to live, as, as with the Corinthians, we're to live as an alternative to the temple's in the city, the other temples in the city. Now, there's Buddhist temple and, and Sikh temple and, and Hindu and uh, you know, mosques and things around here, um, various different religions. We're in a very you know, multicultural kind of society around here, but I, I'm not thinking so much about those because I don't know that our culture is being distinctly shaped by those temples as much as, as some others. Um, I'm thinking of the temples that you and I frequently visit with monuments and constructions dedicated to the gods of this world. Anybody walked into Carousel recently? Near Hoyts, and right in the middle, what do you see a big, big, right in the middle? A massive LED screen advertising whatever they're advertising at the time. A massive monument to the gods of this world, shopping and consumerism, which we go to often enough. It's not a sin to do that, of course. That's not what I'm saying. Um, but, but even more locally than, say, Carousel or Garden City or something like that, um, are the temples, local temples of gathering and community and relationship and bonding. And, and you might think, oh, you're talking about the church. No, I'm not talking about the church. I'm talking about the local pub, which burnt down last Sunday. CY Connors. And I'm not, I'm not here to clap and, or anything like that. Please don't, don't hear me wrong. But, uh, you know, I was amazed. I shouldn't have been, but I was amazed. I had a look at the social media on the CYO kind of event that, that, that burnt down last Saturday. And um, the messages, not just of support, because hopefully there, w- there would be messages of support, but these messages coming through on the social media feeds of, of like, this, this was so special to me. This was the place where I met so-and-so. We went there last uh, weekend because we've just moved from the UK and we were trying to find a place of community to meet people. You know, all these kinds of things. And I was like, Wow. This place was the, the community's temple, the place to go and connect and bond and ultimately worship, because really what we give our attention to is what we worship. Um, the reason this is so interesting to me is 
about two years ago, I, was, I heard somebody talking about the Church of England's kind of church planting and mobilization strategy many hundreds of years ago in, in England. And what they would do is they would get to the center of a crossroads, like where two major highways would intersect, which meant it kind of became the center of culture. There was development and everything happening around there. And that's where they would strategically place a, a substantial church building with a strong community of Christians. And from that center, the crossroads of major highways, they would then be able to plant smaller communities out in, like outposts out into the countryside. Do you know where C.Y. O'Connor's is located? <laughs> At the intersection of four city council regions, Gend- uh, Gender- no, sorry, Coburn, Canning, Gosnells, and Armidale. That is literally the intersection. There's no church there, there's a pub. <laughs> And I think it says a lot about the culture in which we live and what the temples are. The church, not the building, but the people, are to be an alternative. Holy means different, set apart. God's made us holy by the blood of Jesus. Now we've got to become holy. Second image is the church as the body of Christ. And um, as this body, we have been made whole through Jesus' body broken for us. We've been saved, set free, redeemed. We're no longer um, broken and damaged and enslaved to sin. Uh, This is the gift of grace to us, God's gift. Um, Righteousness in God's sight that we did not deserve. And, And we've been given the Holy Spirit so that we may fully live into this reality and draw others into this grace. And this is what the gifts of the Spirit are for. The Greek word for grace, I don't even know this, but in the Greek word for grace and the Greek word for gift... Same word, charis, grace, gift, gift of grace. Uh, If our use of the gifts is not from a deep place of gratitude for God's grace in our lives, then it's a bit off track. And so Paul tells the Corinthians, among other things, that unity is essential. And the key to this unity is the common experience of the Spirit, not something made up just like in a country club or whatever, but the common experience of the Spirit. As you have been graced with God's Spirit, Be a gift of grace to one another. And if we embrace these callings to be the temple, to be the body, this is what it means to be the church. If we embrace this, we'll begin to become what we are. I pray that will be a thriving family called to transform communities with Jesus. This is the way we express who we want to be as the billabong. So all that said, and just for the last couple of minutes, how does this happen? How do we become the church God intends for us to be? How do we live into the already but not yet? How do we conform not to the pattern of this world but be transformed, as Paul says in Romans, by the renewing of our minds? I think it boils down to this. We must be shaped by the gospel and sharpened by each other. And I'll try and be quick on this. What Paul does in 1 Corinthians is he takes an issue, you dealing with food, sacrifice to idols or sexual immorality or, or whatever it might be, and says, what does the gospel have to say about this? There's confusion about what we should... What does the gospel have to say about this? There's disputes... What does the gospel have to say about this? What does the gospel have to say about... What does the gospel have to say about this? And sometimes we do this, go, okay, we're dealing with a challenge here, Lord. What, what is your... And sometimes we just go, what's common sense have to say about this? What's general wisdom has to say about this? What do we think about this? Not, what does the gospel have to say about this? And this is what we are to be shaped by continually. I'll talk in another week because I don't have time today about the different groups of Jews in Jesus' time, four of them. And he said to every one of them, 
your perspective is a bit off. The gospel says this. We're to be shaped by the gospel and sharpen one another, to build up, to strengthen, support, and then to teach from, to teach and learn from each other together, and then sometimes to challenge, sometimes to discipline, sometimes to, to call out one another in love. And this is what Paul is reminding his dear friends in Corinth. If they're not being shaped by the gospel, they're not sharpening each other to be effective instruments for Christ. And so he needs to remind them of his example as a gospel-shaped person, ultimately to point them to Jesus. So as we begin, in, begin this series, I want to finish with a few words from Gordon Fee, um, sharing why this letter is so important for us. And then we'll pray, we'll worship together. And as we together, as, as the church this morning, are looking at one another as we worship, remembering that the church is not the people who stand up there at the front. Uh, the audience is not us and they are not the band. The audience this morning is one God and we together are the ones singing praises to him. Uh, let, us, uh, let me just read these words from Fee before we finished and then we'll sing together. The cosmopolitan character of the city and the church, the strident individualism that emerges in so many of their, the Corinthians, behavioural aberration, the arrogance that attends their understanding of spirituality, the accommodation of the gospel to the surrounding culture in so many ways, these and many other features of the Corinthian church are but mirrors held up before the church of today. Likewise, the need for discipleship modelled after the weakness of Christ, for love to rule over all, for edification to be the aim of worship, for sexual immorality to be seen for what it is, for the expectation of marriages to be permanent. These and many others are every bit as relevant to us as to those to whom they were first spoken. And so this is why we open God's word together, because he speaks to us where we're at today through those words from thousands of years ago. Father, as we stand now and worship you, sing praises to you, Jesus, I pray you would return our attention to you this morning, that if we came here in any way with a, 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 a desire simply to be intellectually stimulated or, or to try and seek out some wisdom which would elevate us, that instead, Lord, our attitude would be laying everything we have down at your feet and letting you shape us letting the gospel shape us. This wonderful news that you, God, your rule, your reign, your kingdom has come near to us. It is at hand and yet we await the future promise and the future hope of glory still to come where we will be raised to life with new glorious bodies as Jesus was. And for this, Lord, we thank you, we praise you and we respond to you once again saying, God, you are worthy of all of our praise, for you have saved us by grace alone, through faith alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.